0: You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church, Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at As so You can turn to Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Uh, if your Bible is in your smartphone, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, those of you that are in youth and college, this is your chance to actually use your smartphone now to go to uh, the Bible because... Uh, I don't know if you know this, but we confiscate their smartphones during Fridays and also Sundays because it is such a distraction. But what we're going through right now is half of Acts. Uh, We're pretty much at the halfway point. It's been, uh, what, a year, and now we're at the halfway point in Acts. I think when we started, I said it'll probably take around one to two years, so it'll probably take two years to finish uh, Acts. But we're at the halfway point, and the title that I have for the sermon today is The Reoccurring Drama... evangelism, And we're going to see that as we go through Acts, as we see Paul, Barnabas, and others preach the gospel to different cities, that the same thing, or at least similar things, happen. The gospel is presented in a mighty way, sometimes with miracles, or just presented really verbally well. A whole bunch of people come to know Christ. The Jewish city leaders don't like it. They persecute them to the point of almost uh, death, meaning that they want to stone him. And then they flee and they go to another city and they do the same thing and the same thing happens and they flee to another city. But as they flee, it is not a fleeing of cowardice and is not a fleeing that is ineffectual because the gospel continues to spread as they make disciples, as they plant new churches. And even though Paul and Barnabas and others are not there, there are other courageous Christians that are there to continue on the work of bring the kingdom of God and the message of salvation to the different people around Turkey and then beyond to the ends of the earth. Now let's do some scripture reading, Acts chapter 14 verses 1 to 7. What is this all about? Okay? Verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and to stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lacaonian cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would reveal your word to us, illuminate it to us so that we can not only understand it, but also apply it to our Christian lives. I pray, Father, for those of us who are not yet Christians, who are still seeking you, who have not yet committed our lives to you, Uh, and ask you to be the Lord and Savior of our lives and to take take away our sins. We pray, Lord, that this message would help them further to go towards your direction rather than their own or the devil's. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now here's a picture of modern-day Iconium to show you that this is an actual place. These places that the apostles are now visiting are actual places that still exists, and there's now a modern city either built over it or next to the ancient city, and it's still called the same thing, or something similar, for example, Iconium or Konya, Turkey. And what is amazing is as we go through Acts, we find that archaeologists have excavated so many places and situations and people that are listed in Acts that now, a lot of times, they use... Acts in order to confirm their archaeology rather than archaeology in order to confirm Acts. So as we go through these missionary journeys, there are three main ones that Paul goes through. Realize that these are actual historical places and these events actually happen. This is not just a myth or a nice story to help share the gospel and to teach young women and children and, and men to, to be good people, but these things actually happened. Now, where are they right now? Paul and Barnabas started from Antioch and are on their first missionary journey. So if you see that star on the far right side above Syria, that's Antioch. And then they traveled through Cyprus. I preached about that. And they went through Cyprus, met this uh, governor called Sergius Paulus, which Luke calls him a very intelligent man. And they had to contend and conflict with the sorcerer that the governor trusted for advice. So, Elimus, and they, of course, beat Elimus because the power of God is more powerful than the power of Satan. And after they did their missions to Cyprus, they move on up to Perga, and then northwards to Pisidian Antioch, Antioch in the province of Pisidia, which Joe Montes, our guest speaker, talked about a few weeks ago. And then now they're going towards Iconium, And again, why is the reason why they're going to Iconium? Because the same thing that we're going to see happen in Iconium was the same thing that happened in Pisidian Antioch. They did such a good job of sharing the gospel. So many people were converted that the Jewish leaders kicked them out and persecuted them so that they had to flee to Iconium. Now, here's the background of what is going on in Acts chapter 14 1 to 7. Paul and Barnabas just got kicked out of Antioch for evangelizing and converting too many people for the Jewish leader's liking. That's found in chapter 13, verses 13 to 52. Then they traveled to Iconium, which is about 40 miles east of Pisidian in Antioch, and it looks like the same thing happens again. Verse 1 and 2 says this. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke. And so if you remember what Joel shared, uh, every traveling rabbi or a person of importance, which Paul and Barnabas was, would be given a chance to share what God has been teaching them at the end of each Jewish synagogue gathering. And so they shared the gospel. And they spoke it so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now the next verse says that they spent considerable time there. And what that means is that when they met that persecution, that poisoning of the minds of the Gentiles against them, they didn't just go, okay, see you later. We're going to go to Lystra or we're going to go to another city. But they actually spent considerable amount of time there, which probably means a few months at least to at most around a year sharing and explaining the gospel, continuing to make disciples, and possibly even planting churches. Right? Now, this is an inference from Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Remember, Barnabas spends one entire year discipling those people who believed in Jesus at Antioch, and that became the church at Antioch. So anywhere between a couple of months to a whole year, spent time there contending with those who were against them here at Iconium, making disciples, continuing to share the gospel. This was their mission strip. Now, God confirmed their ministry through allowing them to perform miraculous signs and wonders. Now, this is really important because it confirms that the kingdom of God had actually come. And this is from a Jewish prophecy in Joel. But before we get to Joel, we have to discuss what is the difference between miracles, signs, and wonders. Oftentimes, we just throw them all into the same place. Oh, yeah, those are all just miracles. Those are all synonymous. Well, they sort of are synonymous, but there are distinct differences between each of them, or else they would just call them miracles. They wouldn't say miraculous signs and wonders, right? So miracles are just supernatural interventions from God. So let's say I pray for someone for their healing, and they're healed. That is a miracle. It is a supernatural intervention from God. Signs and wonders are specific miracles tailored for a specific purpose. So, like the word says, a sign, when you see a sign, it says stop. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to stop. I was once, my first time doing missions, or my first time driving in Tijuana doing missions there in Mexico, I saw these signs that looked like stop signs, but it didn't say stop on them. It said alto. And so I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. And I just kept going. Alto, alto, alto. Oh, okay, alto. That's really interesting, right? I kept it in my mind. These are really interesting signs. They, they, they're called alto, and they look like stop signs. Wow. V-v-v-v- keep driving, right? Until after I passed the tenth alto sign, I asked, hey, what are these, these signs? They look like stop signs. Called? They're, they're, they're called alto, because, and then the person who knew Spanish said, oh, you're supposed to stop, because alto means stop. <laughs> I blamed that person. Because that person knew, and he did not say anything. It's not my fault. It is not my fault, all right? But anyways, a sign is pointing to something. A stop sign means stop. A go sign means go. A miraculous sign is a miracle that points to God, Jesus, or God's kingdom, all right? So, for example, when Jesus healed the paralytic, why did he heal the paralytic? Because he wanted to point to this sign that Jesus was God, and, and how do we know? Because only God can forgive sins. So remember, during that story in the Gospels, Jesus is overheard by the Jewish leaders as, I forgive you, the paralytic. And then the Jewish leader says, who is this person who says that he can forgive sins? This is blasphemy. This is heresy. Because no one can forgive sins except God alone. So Jesus is actually, if for him to actually be able to do that, he has to be God. And, of course, the Jewish leader is like, this is not God. This is just a traveling rabbi. And how is Jesus going to prove to everyone that he has the ability to forgive sins? In a visual way. There's no way. The only way is that person who criticized Jesus, if Jesus takes his soul out from him, lifts him up to heaven, and then shows God this person doesn't believe, that I am you in human form, God the Father. Tell him that I can forgive sins. Yes, he can forgive sins. Okay, comes back down and puts the soul back into the person's body. And goes, oh, okay, yes, I believe, I believe. That's like the only way, right? So what does he actually do that's more effective and everyone can see that he doesn't have to do something so dramatic? Well, he then does a, a miracle that points to him, a lesser miracle which just so happens to be one of the greatest miracles ever done. Because in the Old Testament, you don't see anything like this even happening when it comes to miracles. He tells the paralyzed man to walk. So he heals his paralysis. And then he says, this is so that you can know that even the Son of Man can forgive sins. And everyone is just awed because, wow, he says he can forgive sins, and he proves that he can do something as crazy and as awesome as healing a paralyzed man. And then all of a sudden, his credibility to be able to forgive sins is skyrocketed, right? So signs are miracles that point to God, Jesus, or his kingdom. Wonders are miracles that causes awe or terror to God. So when Moses parted the Red Sea by God's power, that was a wonder. When Elijah called down fire from heaven uh, through God's power... That was a wonder. People who were for God were in awe and reverence of God as a result. And people who were against God, for example, the Egyptians or the 500 prophets of Baal, were now terrified that this was the God that they had to contend with. Now, for those of you that are uh, MCU fans or DC Comics fans, uh, the Greek word from where we get wonder is where we get the word marvel. All right, so... So, yes, so those uh, shows are biblical. Yes, yes, just kidding, just kidding. Now, here's a little side note. Like I was saying, when Paul and Barnabas does these signs and connects it with Jesus Christ and the gospel, his life, death, and resurrection, the Jewish people would know that this was an announcement that the kingdom of God had come through the Messiah. How did we know that? Because in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 30, it says this, and afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughter will prophesy. That's the miracle. That's a sign. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And Joel is from the Old Testament. And in the context of that, these were the last days when the kingdom of God would come in full force and the Messiah would come. And the Jews who are watching Paul and Barnabas saying this, who knew the Old Testament, would realize that this is what Paul and Barnabas was referring to because they could see these signs and wonders happening in front of their very eyes. They connected with the person of Jesus Christ that they're preaching about and they are more inclined to believe. So people wonder, how is it possible that Uh, so many people came to know Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. Well, in connection with the effective message of the gospel that Paul and Barnabas preached, there were these miracles, signs, and wonders that also confirmed that Paul and Barnabas, their preaching was from God himself. And so you better listen to them. So in verse 3, it says, So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, up to probably about one year speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. And just like last time at Pisidian Antioch, so many people became Christians that it most likely aroused the envy and the jealousy of the Iconium Jewish leaders. If you can remember the last chapter in verse 44 to 45, why did they persecute the apostles so much? Well, because of this. On the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city of Pisidian Antioch gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Before this, before the Jewish leaders saw that they were so influential, I don't think they really cared that much. But now they saw how influential they were, and they realized they're going to lose a lot of popularity and a lot of positional authority and influence We need to speak abusively against them and kick them out or else they're going to take over all of our Jewish followers with this new gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, it says, The people of the, the city of Iconium were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and to stone them. Now, Luke doesn't really write how bad this is, but this is bad because when someone writes that the Jewish leaders came together to form a plot in order to mistreat someone and to stone them, you can't get any worse than that, okay? That's like if I said today, we're going to try to find these people and we're going to try to shoot them. And if we don't shoot them, we're going to capture them and then we're going to try to gas them in the gas chamber or electrocute them. Um, in an electric chair. That's basically what they're saying. So humble Luke is basically saying that they really want to get at these guys. Uh, the apostles of Paul and Barnabas, they wanted the death penalty for them, for what they were doing. Bring so many people to this Messiah, Jesus Christ. So in order to avoid getting killed, they escaped to the next city, Lystra, just about 10 miles south of Iconium, and continued their evangelism there. But they found out about it their death warrant, and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. Now, here are six things that we learn about the Christian life from Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Yes, I know, you're saying, six things? How is that possible? There's only seven verses, and you already have six things, right? Can you come up with, like, eight things, which is, like, beyond the seven verses, right? I know, but there are six things that we can learn From Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 7, about our Christian life. First of all, in every group evangelism situation, there usually will be the converts and also the conflict. In every group evangelistic situation, expect there to be converts and expect there to be a conflict. We see that in verses 1 to 2. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Isn't that a sad thing? I mean, here, we don't even have to talk about Paul and Barnabas, but even in your own life, when you try to share the gospel in a group situation, let's say it's your family, let's say it's at work uh, during off hours, let's say it's at school, whether it be during class or at lunch, and you share something about... Jesus Christ. You share about your faith. And you have people, you always have people that are interested and they're willing to listen, some who might be willing to believe. And then you always have a couple of people, if not one, who are against you and who will argue violently against you just because you dared bring up Jesus and you dared bring up the positivity of Christianity, your religion. It reminds me of when I was passing out gospel tracts in Disneyland. Yes, I still do that sometimes. Um, but this one time I was on a date with Kate. This is when we were still uh, courting. We went to Disneyland. At night, we went to a diner in Disneyland. And then, after we got our sandwiches, our burgers, our fries, I passed out a gospel tract to, to the lady that was on the counter. And then we went and sat down. When I pass the gospel tract, I will say, um, Here's a free gift for you. This is about God. And if they accept it, they go, "Oh, okay." Then they accept it. If they say, "Oh no, I really don't care about that," then I just take it back. Anyways, she accepted it, and then as I was eating, I saw her devouring through the gospel check. She was really reading through it. It was late. There wasn't a lot of customers that were ordering things. She was reading through it, like she was really interested. And then her coworker comes, and I'm like, "Okay, well, either he's going to say something good or bad about it." And he he saw what happened, and he's. And I heard him say this, don't believe that stuff, man. Don't believe it. And she's like, why? I used to go to church. There are a whole bunch of hypocrites over there. But this stuff is so cool. I'm telling you, don't believe in it. It's all fake. It's just a myth. And I was just bummed because it was like, oh, man, she was really getting into it. And I just hope that she was able to not really think of what her coworker was saying. But whenever we evangelize, there's always going to be the converted and also those who are conflicted. Now, to give you hope, the good thing about this situation, the positive thing about this situation is this, that you now know who's interested and you now know who's not interested, and you focus on those who are interested. And I think those of us who are older in this congregation, especially those in the Mandarin side, Remember it's the founding of this church, how it was like that as well. I remember elder David Liu sharing with me the story of how they were going to have a church building here. How all of this this entire area was just a hill with dirt and weeds, and how they decided, you know we're gonna have a church here. They went to City Hall, the neighbors and different parts people of the city complained, they don't want to have the traffic, they don't want we don't need another church. Here And there were so many complaints, it was almost not going to happen. Everyone prayed, and then at that deciding moment in City Hall, when they were going to hear the last arguments from all, all the people who did not want this church to be here, none of them came to that meeting. And then the city allowed us to have this place in order to have a church building here. And that was a miracle from God right there. But again, you will always have the converts, and you will always have those who are in conflict with you. This is normal. Expect that. Second thing that we learn from this passage is that you are not a failure or abnormal if you get persecuted because you share the gospel and many believed. You are not abnormal, you are not a failure if you get persecuted because you shared the gospel and many believed. Verse 2 and verse 5 says this, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There's a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. You know, often we equate criticism, when someone says bad things to you, with failure. But here is a principle in the Bible that we find that sometimes great criticism, to the point of physical, someone wanting to physically harm you, not verbally harming you, but physically harming you, could be an indicator of success that they evangelized so well and the power of God was moving through them so well that Satan didn't like it. The people who were against them didn't like it, and so they pushed back. But that pushback was a result of their success, not as a result of their failure. And in our own lives, that may be true true too. Maybe it's not because you're not doing a good job of being a Christian and sharing the gospel. Maybe it's because you're doing a really good, good job a really far-out job of being a Christ-like person, sharing the gospel, and as a result, Satan knows. There's a spiritual warfare in the background. Satan knows. People don't like it. Your friends from other religions, especially your atheist friends, don't like it. And then they begin to oppose you. And it's ironic, only in the Christian life, that if you do a bad job of being a Christian, you'll be criticized. And if you do a good job of being a Christian, you will be criticized. But at least if you do a good job of being a Christian, you'll be criticized legitimately, right? Because you're being successful. You 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 be a bad Christian, people will criticize you. You're a hypocrite. I can't see Christ in you. Why should I listen to your message? Or your delivery of the message sucks. I can't understand the gospel because you don't you yourself... Although you believe it, you can't deliver it. I don't understand what it means. But if you're a good Christian and you share the gospel well, I totally know what it means and I don't agree with you. I don't want to believe in you. But this is normal, okay? You are not a failure or abnormal if you get persecuted because you share the gospel really well and people got saved. Third of all, we learned that it is not wrong to take time to persuade the same people to come to know Christ. It is not wrong to take time to try to convince the same people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. A lot of time we think that in Acts, they just share the gospel. Those who believed believed, Those who didn't, didn't. And then they moved on. But we see that was not the case. Verse 2, But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. When I was in college, I had a friend named Larry who went to UCR, University of California, Riverside. And I visited him, and I would ask him spiritual questions. How is he doing in the faith? And one time I asked him, How is he doing in his evangelism? Have you made some connections with friends at UCR? Have you uh, shared the gospel with them? And then he shared me this. Well, Peter, my philosophy of evangelism is this. I will tell them about Jesus, and if they want to know more, I will tell them more. If they say, I'm not interested, or I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in God, then I don't say anything anymore, and I move on. Now, I didn't say anything. I just prayed for him. Uh, for his evangelism. But in my mind, I was thinking, you can try harder. <laughs> you can try harder. I was thinking, that's it? Can't you share with them and try to convince and persuade them of the truth of the gospel, that there is a God, that Jesus actually existed, and that the, there is a lot of great evidence in the Bible and outside of the Bible that the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus of history, and you should consider his claims. I mean, there's so many resources out there that can help you with this. But a lot of times, we can be like that, too. We're like our friend, my friend Larry. We just share the gospel. They're not interested. Okay, and then you just back off, and then you move on to the next person. We can try a little harder. We can beef up on our apologetics. We could beef up on our Bible knowledge, and we can try... Again, remember, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, which is at least a couple of months to possibly a whole year trying to convince people of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourth of all, we learn that even miracles in evangelism may not change a stubborn, unbelieving heart. Even if there are miracles that are happening, this may not change the non-believer's heart in terms of believing Verse 3 says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So these signs and wonders confirmed the message of the gospel. But the people of the city were still divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. And to this point, I would say that a lot of times we give an excuse of of why we don't evangelize further or why we're bummed out in our evangelism. And usually the excuse is this, is if only Jesus would just appear to my non-Christian friend, then he or she would believe. Or if only my non-Christian friend right now is, is going through some kind of illness, if only God would answer my prayer that he or she would be instantly cured, then he or she will know that God is real. Of course, that could be true. We see a lot of people coming to know Christ because of these signs and wonders that confirmed the gospel of grace. But at the same time, the city was still divided. Not all of them believed. And so it is true that this passage proves otherwise that there will need to be other factors, other things that we need to do in order to share the gospel with them so that they would believe. For example, spending time with them, relating with them, showing how Jesus is real in your life, continuing to pray for them that God would work in their hearts in a way that miracles would not work in their hearts and waiting for openings to share the gospel with them. And usually, in my experience, these openings will usually happen in one way. Something tragic happens to their life meaning that they go through a life-threatening experience, or one of their close ones, their friends, a personal friend or a family member goes through some kind of terminal illness, um, some kind of a fatal accident, and then they're open to believing or hearing what you have to say. But continue to relate with them in order to be able to share the gospel with them at those opportune times. Fifth of all, sometimes people will care less about the truth of the gospel if it threatens their power and popularity. We've already read verses 2 and also 13, 44 to 45, so I won't read it again. But people will care less about the truth of the gospel if it threatens their power and popularity. Have you ever wondered why Hollywood celebrities and government politicians find it hard to follow Jesus? And those who claim to be Christians... We wonder, are they really Christians? And their Christianity is very shallow because it doesn't seem that they're following Jesus that much in the first place. Well, because to truly be a follower of Christ, you would have to compromise at times your own personal power and influence and your popularity. Jesus said himself, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so when you're sharing the gospel, sometimes if they are people of high position and popularity, it'll be harder because they have more to lose if they become a Christian and if they're serious about becoming a Christian. If they want to become a shallow Christian, it's easy. Anyone can pray a prayer and say that they're a Christian. But if they truly want to follow Christ, it will cost them something. So we need, just like what I said on the previous point, Pray for them and wait for those opportunities to share the gospel with them. Last but not least, it is not cowardly to evangelize at another place if your life is threatened. The important thing is to keep on sharing the gospel and making disciples. Verses 5 to 7, there was a plot of foot amongst the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe, Into the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. Now at first, I don't know about you, but for me, I was like, wait, why did they leave? Why didn't they stand their ground and show that they weren't afraid of death? Well, the reason why is because martyrdom wasn't their first mission's goal. The spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth was their first mission's goal, not martyrdom. And so if martyrdom happened, which it did happen to many of the disciples, it was a side result, but it wasn't their main goal to want to die for Christ. Their main goal was to share the gospel with as many people as they could. And they were actually following what Jesus taught. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus said this, When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man Jesus comes, right? Now, again, many of us wonder why certain missionaries won't stay in their mission's field during times of war or times of violence. And I remember myself wondering, well, shouldn't they stay there to to show that Christians are courageous and, and so that they can preserve the light of Christ in that area? Well, According to what we've read in the scriptures, staying, although optional, is not necessary if you face heavy persecution. What is important is continuing to get the gospel out into different areas and different places. Now, don't worry about the Iconian Christians because their their target was not all of the Christians, but their target was the leaders. It was Paul and Barnabas. And so we know that there were a lot of Christians still there. And also, we know that in Acts chapter 14, later on, verse 21 to 22, Paul and Barnabas comes back later to check up on them after everything has cooled down. I hope this helps you to understand if you're going through this recurring drama of evangelism, every time you try to evangelize, you face competition or resistance. Especially when you do a good job of it, you face even more resistance, You are not abnormal. You are normal, and you are succeeding because Satan is in the background. He doesn't want you taking away his people to the good side, and that's exactly what you are doing when you share the gospel and people are coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let's pray.